Certainly have enjoyed the good song service in worship of our worthy King. This morning I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles with us to the New Testament book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to look at the first 14 verses of this wonderful, wonderful letter. And we're going to title our study this morning, The Riches of His Grace. The Riches of His Grace. This is an expression that the Apostle Paul uses several times in this wonderful letter. In chapter 2, verse 7, he says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. And in chapter 3, verse 8, he says, Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of of Jesus Christ. When we think about riches this morning, we're thinking about the attributes of God that are characterized by this term of undiminishing abundance. Riches, the riches of the grace of God. You know, the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his grace past finding out. This morning we are going to look at uh, a wonderful presentation by the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus, but also recognizing that this letter was circulated among uh, a lot of the churches of Asia. There have been um, there have been uh, uh, copies of this letter found in uh, Colossae and in other uh, places that tend to make us uh, realize that this letter could have been used among many churches because, after all, there's no individual identified in the letter and, and there's no specific issue in any particular church that's being addressed. So this letter this morning needs to be understood in that context that it's written to us it's written to every new testament church and it's basically a, a doctrinal uh, presentation uh, the first three chapters are focused upon the doctrine the solid foundation of the new testament church and then the last three chapters are, are practical or the duties that are incumbent upon the New Testament church. It's an interesting letter. It's an interesting study. And I pray that it will be an encouragement to us this morning. I want to I, I remind us that this is one of the four prison epistles that Paul did write. He wrote this epistle from the Roman prison. Uh, in about 61 or 62 A.D. He also wrote Colossians, and we're very familiar with that one. Uh, also the book of Philippians and uh, the letter to Philemon. All of them were written during the same period of time that the Apostle Paul spent two years in his first imprisonment at Rome, according to Acts chapter 28. 
he would have that kind of liberty, and yet he would be incarcerated. He would be limited in his ability to go and see the brethren face to face. And perhaps even the thought would come to him under the Neronian period of persecution that he would not even be able to see these brethren again. So he's going to write a letter to them that would be uh, as something bequeathed if he did not see them again. He wants them to remember these principles. In these verses that we're going to study this morning, you're going to recognize one of the longest, or actually the longest sentence in all of the scripture. The longest sentence is found between verses 3 and 14. So let's look at it from that standpoint. And as we come to this study, we're going to come as uh, receiving uh, something near to the heart of the Apostle Paul with respect to the church in every period of time. He begins Paul, an apostle or one sent with authority of Jesus Christ by the will of God, not something that I campaigned for, something that um, I uh, treasured uh, and sought after, but by the sovereign will of God to the saints, to the saints, to the sanctified ones, those who have been separated by God's grace from the unbelieving world to a discipleship and following of Jesus Christ, to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. We need to remember that Paul was very close to this church. The apostle Paul followed the ministry of Apollos and Aquila who had gone to Ephesus when they were expelled from Rome and, and they found a pocket, a, a, a small group of people that were brought by grace to believe in Christ and, and, and they were very um, uh, loyal to one another, and the Apostle Paul would go there on his second uh, evangelistic trip. He would go to Ephesus, and he would spend a short time there, and then he would actually return again because of what he found in Ephesus, and, and he would dwell there the longest period of time that he dwelt anywhere. For a period of three years, he would dwell and teach at Ephesus, as we find in Acts chapter 19 and 20. He had a very great love for this church. And uh, remember that Ephesus was a major, a major city. It was the chief city of uh, Asia Minor. It was actually the capital of Asia Minor as it was conquered by the Roman Empire. And, and they were noted for their colleges. They were noted for their commerce. They, they were noted for their Roman antiquity. They were connected to Rome. So there, were a, there, there was a, a, a great population there that were intellectually prepared for a ministry like the Apostle Paul. And uh, God would raise up a mighty church at Ephesus. When I say mighty, I'm, I'm talking about not only the ministry of Paul and his son in the ministry, Timothy, but also later, even the Apostle John himself would be senior pastor at the church at Ephesus. So you know this is favored ground that we're talking about. And the Apostle Paul is writing this letter, and he wants to remind them of several things 
concerning the riches of God's grace. He says in verse 2, Grace be unto you in peace from God our Father. Of course, this is the apostolic benediction. He, he puts this in every epistle, doesn't he? And the reason he does is because there is no peace apart from God's grace. There is no peace apart from God's grace in Jesus Christ. He says, Grace be to you in peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Here the Apostle Paul wants us to uh, uh, resonate with the reality that Jesus Christ is the mediator of all blessings. He is the go-between between us and the Father. He, he is equal uh, to the Father in the Godhead, but yet he is subservient to him in his ministry to the elect family of God. He is, he is our mediator. He is our great high priest. He is the fountain and the spring from which all blessings flow, according to Matthew Henry. Now we begin in verse 3. We're going, to, uh, we're going to divide this into three parts. It's very Trinitarian, very Trinitarian. The first part, are, we're going to see the blessings of God the Father. And the focus of those blessings is going to be in the past. In verses uh, 3 through 6. And then in verses 7 through 12. We're going to see the blessings of God the Son. And the emphasis is going to be in the present age. And then thirdly. The blessings of God the Holy Spirit. Verses 13 and 14. And that emphasis is going to be on the future blessings. So we have past, present, and future did you know that that covers the uh, impact of what we know as salvation? The salvation that I'm talking about to you uh, this morning has a past, a present, and praise the Lord, it's got a future. So here he begins by saying in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father. He's going to emphasize the Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Here we see the uh, blessings itself that come to us from God the Father through his son, Jesus Christ. I love that acronym of grace. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. If we were to define grace in a practical way. Now the word caritas, from which the word grace is translated in the English literally means freely bestowed, something that is freely given um, that is uh, undeserved by the recipient. That's what the word means, actually. But God's riches at Christ's expense is a very practical definition of what God has bestowed upon us in salvation. Because, brothers and sisters, 
we need to realize that none of us, no human being, has ever been worthy of the saving work of grace in their life. Not one. There is none good, no, not one. None righteous, no, not one. None that seeketh after God, no, not one. None worthy to take the book out of him that sat upon the throne. None. In earth or in earth below or in uh, any other part of the universe, there is none worthy of salvation. So the emphasis of this letter and this message is going to be that of grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. So the Apostle Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. All of the blessings of God the Father toward His people are found in Christ Jesus. Someone says, well, it doesn't matter if we believe in Jesus. It doesn't matter if we know Jesus. It doesn't matter if we follow after Jesus. It makes no difference what you consider deity. If you just kind of just choose your road and every road leads ultimately to God, I'm going to tell you that's blasphemy on the first degree. There is one way to the Father, only one, exclusively, that is Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father except by me. John chapter 14, verse 6. So Paul is filled with praise. I want you to see this. This is the beginning of the longest sentence in the entire Bible. You'll you'll read this. uh, We'll study this all the way through this morning. And you're not going to find a period until we get to the end of verse 14. Now, that's going to drive you English teachers crazy. I I realize that. But remember, this is the great Apostle Paul, and he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I believe he's kind of, uh, he's a, a precursor to the old Baptist ministers. They just don't know where to stop, you know. But here he is. He, he's blessing God. That's what we're doing here this morning. We are speaking well of God in all of his majesty, in all of his glory, and his vicissitudes of, of grace and kindness toward the sons of men. We are blessing him in our worship and in our praise. We are blessing the Father who gave us the Son and through him ministered to us all of the heavenly blessings that we'll ever enjoy. And there are no heavenly blessings apart from Jesus Christ. I want to be very clear on that point. Here he begins showing us the privileges, parts of the heavenly blessings that are ours through the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 4, according or in accordance with, as he, the Father, hath chosen us, hath chosen us, when? When we chose him, hath chosen us. When we decided to let him save us, chosen us. When? When did he choose us? Here he makes the point. Before the foundation of the world. Now you stop right there. The first benefit that the Apostle Paul wants to draw our attention to is the fact of sovereign election. That God sovereignly chose a people in Christ before time ever began. In fact, before the world had a beginning. Before you had a beginning. Before Adam and Eve had a beginning. 
God purposed in himself to choose a people out of the lump of mankind to be his very own. Somebody says, well, Brother Jeff, I'll tell you, yeah, I know the Bible says a few things about election, but it never talks about electing an individual. Have you ever heard this argument? They talk about uh, election of a nation, like Israel is called the elect of God. That's true. Israel is called the elect of God, but I believe in a personal election is under consideration here. An election that is... uh, testified in many verses, some of which I'll share with you in Psalm chapter 65, verse 4. David said, Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causest to approach unto thee that he may dwell in thy courts. Does that sound like, a, does that sound like an individual? A man? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm talking about a personal election. I'm talking about an individual election of individuals out of every nation, kindred tongue, and people that we read about over there in Revelation chapter 7, that great multitude that no man could number out of all the nations of the earth. Those are the elect. Election, brothers and sisters, is based upon the sovereign grace of a sovereign God. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul said, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Who are the believers? Who are the ones that believe? They're elect. They're the only ones that can, brothers and sisters. We do not believe in order to become elect. We believe because we are the elect. See the difference? In Galatians chapter 4, in verse 5, the Apostle Paul put it this way. Because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his Son into our hearts, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Isn't that beautiful? But notice, he says, because you are sons, because you are in a covenant relationship with God from even before time began, now God sends the spirit of his son into our hearts. And by that spirit, we're able to acknowledge that relationship. We cry out, Abba, Father, or Father, Father, as it were, my Father. That's a a possessive uh, terminology, Abba, my Father. In John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus said, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. See, see, God has that right, doesn't he? God has that right. He has that ability. He has that prerogative and, if you will, uh, uh, initiative to choose a people for his very own, for his own glory. I love what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. He said, He hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. 
So the Apostle Paul wants to address the chiefest blessing that you and I could ever acknowledge. And that is, he chose me before I ever chose him. Why did you choose him? Why did you choose to follow Jesus? It's because he chose you for that purpose. He's the one that put it in your heart. He's the one that put it in your will. He's the one that put it in your mind to serve and love Jesus Christ. The human mind is not able, nor does it have the capacity to entertain such a notion as that. So Paul says, first of all, I want you to understand that we have blessings through electing grace. He hath chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Why? Why would he do that? Somebody says, well, maybe he was lonely and he needed somebody to fellowship in heaven. I want you to know that's blasphemy. God is not lonesome. God was satisfied with himself and is satisfied with himself. You cannot be unsatisfied with perfection. See, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit loved and had fellowship before the world was even created, and it was fulfilling and satisfying. He didn't need anybody to fulfill any need in his own experience. You see, God is God, and he's all-sufficient. Yahweh, it means all-sufficient one. He has everything he needs. But he in his sovereign fiat, he in his sovereign will, he in his sovereign pleasure chose a people to be his very own. And he chose them for a purpose. That we should be holy and without blame, without sin, before him in love. How can uh, individuals like you and I ever even dream about being in an existence without sin. We sin every day. Sometimes we sin knowingly, but sometimes we sin unknowingly. But because of Jesus Christ, those sins are forgiven. Those sins are put away from us. He, he chose us uh, before time began to reflect His holy character. That's why Peter would say, Be ye holy. Because he is holy. In other words, you're reflecting his image. That's what God created us for. That's why God saved your soul. It is so that you, through your praise, adoration and worship, and devotion in life, would reflect his image, would reflect his grace toward you. That's what he was all about. According as he had chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in what? In love, not anger, not wrath, not judgment, but before Him in love. There's agape. The agape love, and agape, is the, 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 the expression there. And it means in the atmosphere and in the benefit of love. A love undeserved. 
a, a love unmerited, a, a, a love unparalleled. This is what the Apostle Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, when he said that he focused, even when we were yet enemies, God, uh, Christ, uh, God loved us. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How? Why? Why would he do such a thing? Greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. John 15:13. What I'm trying to draw your attention to is the privileges that we have through the Father, from the Father, that were given, uh, are given to us based upon the merit of the riches of His grace. I could take off right there. I could talk a long time on that love, huh? We, we can, can't we? But He didn't stop there, and I'm glad He didn't. These are, you talk about a sound foundation, brother. You, you talk about a good foundation for our faith, a good foundation for our life, a good foundation for our marriage, a good foundation for our church, a good foundation for our nation. It is to acknowledge these timeless truths that relate to the riches of His grace. Not only does Paul draw attention to our election in the Lord Jesus Christ, but also our predestination. Oh, by the way, the Bible does teach it. I've had people in my experience that would say, I have never, you've invented that word, I have never read it a day in my life. Have you ever had, uh, talked to anybody like that? That's not in the Bible. Oh, no, you, you're talking about Calvin's Institutes of Christian. That, that's not the Bible. Oh, do you have a Bible with you? No, I've got one in my truck. I, let me get it for you. And I want you to read, just read, usually two places, Ephesians 1 and Romans 8. And then you ask them the question, what does that say? And they just kind of drop their jaw and say, I never saw that before. Well, the reason you never saw it before is because there's very few people that teach on it. You know why they don't teach on it? They, this is what they tell me anyway. I, I don't know this. But they tell me the reason they don't teach on predestination, election and predestination, is because it's a divisive doctrine. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. It's one of the most beautiful doctrines, if it's understood, that you'll ever come into contact with. There's more comfort this morning for the weary traveler. There's more comfort for those that are more down under heavy burdens than to realize there's a God in heaven that looked down through the, the, the very corridors of time and saw us as individuals and said, I love that person and I'm going to send my son to die for his sins and I'm going to bear him up and bring him all the way to glory. I'm telling you, that's what the doctrine of a predestination deals with. There's no facet, understand me, there's no facet of your salvation or mine that is dependent upon our doing or our working. It is all of God. And it's according to His predestinating work, His prorizo, His ability to determine beforehand or to ordain beforehand. That's what the Apostle Paul meant in Romans chapter 8, verse 29 
when he was talking about uh, uh, being conformed to the image of Christ, having been predestinated according to his good pleasure, uh, to be conformed to the image of Christ. For whom he did foreknow, them did he also predestinate. Them that he predestinated, them did he also call. Them that he called, them did he also justify. Them that he justified, them did he also uh, glorify. And brothers and sisters, from the foreknowledge to the glorification, not one of them is lost. Not one is changed. God's pencil doesn't have an eraser. If he wrote your name in the Lamb's book of life before time began, what is going to motivate him to erase it at the end of time? I heard a minister use that point once. I turned it off. It was on the radio. I turned it off. I said, that's heresy. You know, he's, he's saying if you don't do just right, God, the same, he's, his point was God's pencil that wrote your name in his book has an eraser and he can rub you out. I said, oh, that's... That's blasphemy. Because all that God has chosen in Christ before time began will ultimately be with Christ in the end of time. They're not one are going to be lost. Paul wants to remind you of that. Don't lose sight of that. That's not a divisive doctrine, brother. That's foundational to the true gospel. Much could be said, of course, on that. But then he talks about one of the greatest benefits of predestination, and that's in the word adoption. Listen to what he says. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. Now let that sink in. This is what God the Father has done for us. He has not only predestinated us to be with him in the end of time, but he predestinated us to be adopted into his family. The word adoption there is simply the placing of a son or a daughter. You're, you're, placing, you're, you're taking a son or a daughter from one family and putting them into another family. That's what the word means, adoption. And you're giving them the privileges and the benefits of adulthood. In other words... They can never lose that name. Did you know that? They can never lose that heritage. Did you know that even in America, uh, Don and I looked into this. Uh, we were uh, considering adopting some foster children at one time, and we looked into this and, 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 and learned a great deal about adoption. In, the, in America, a family has the right to disinherit a natural-born biological child. You can do that legally. But in, in America, you can never disinherit an adopted child. No matter what. They cannot lose their place. They cannot lose their name or the benefits of that name. They cannot in the United States of America, do that. And we found out that that was patterned after Roman law. And Roman law was patterned after the Jewish law because adoption is final. And here we find that, uh, isn't it interesting, that that term is used in reference to our relationship with God the Father, that he actually had the ability and the power and the initiative to take us out of the fallen mass of mankind and place us into his holy, righteous, and eternal family. And we can't lose it. 
Can't lose that position. Is that divisive? My soul, that's my only hope of eternal life. Not only adoption. I, I believe that adoption is the goal of predestination. To produce holiness, to place us into the family of God, and to provide praise for his glory. To provide praise for his glory. You want to know why he chose anybody before time began? For his own glory. You know why he saves a sinner? Uh, uh, a wild-eyed, uh, separated, sinful, no good for nothing. A sinner like you and me. The reason he does it is for his glory. Not for your glory. For his glory. Paul wants to remind the church of that. He says, we've been adopted and we call out to him as Abba Father. And listen to this, having predestinated us into the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, not the will of the sinner, but his will, his holy and sovereign will. Why? To the praise of the glory of his what? His grace, that's it. Wherein he hath made us, that's the elect, accepted in the beloved. Accepted in the beloved. The word acceptance there is translated highly favored. Highly favored. In Luke chapter 1 verse 28. When, uh, remember when the angel was talking to Mary and said, uh, Blessed art thou among women, thou art highly favored. Right? Well, that, high, that same Greek term is accepted. You have been accepted in this role. You have been accepted by God to be the earthly mother of his son. Accepted. Here he says the Father hath made us accepted in the beloved, in, in Jesus Christ. He's the one that made us highly favored because and by virtue of his sovereign grace. He's the one that has given us um, uh, the righteous standing before a holy God. Now verse 7 begins the second part of Paul's treatise on the riches of his grace. Because now he's going to focus upon the blessings that we have through God the Son. In whom, in Christ... We have redemption through his blood. Now stop right there. Understand what he's talking about. He's talking about uh, a ransom that was paid. A ransom that could only be paid by the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, when you, uh, when you study the Old Testament scripture and you study the Goel, the near kinsman, you remember the story of Ruth and Boaz. Boaz was able to purchase Ruth by virtue of his relationship with Ruth's family. He was a near kinsman. Therefore, he had a right. He had a right to purchase everything that belonged to Naomi and, and of course, Ruth. Jesus Christ became a man. Why? To be our near kinsman. He had to come in the family of man to accomplish redemption. To have the right to pay the ransom. To have the right to buy back what was lost. 
You see it? You follow it? So the word redemption is a very important word in our study this morning relative to the riches of grace because this is what the Apostle Paul is drawing our attention to. He says, not only do we have all these blessings from the Father, but look what we have in the Son. Look what we have. We have redemption through His blood. Remember what the Apostle Peter said in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. He says, Know ye not that ye were not redeemed with such corruptible things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ as a Lamb of God without spot and without blemish. Remember what the Apostle Paul uh, wrote, uh, I believe it's uh, chapter 9 uh, of Hebrews, uh, chapter 9, verse 12. He says, Not by the blood of bulls and goats, but uh, by, the, uh, by his own blood hath he entered once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. See, what I'm talking about this morning is something that you cannot attain uh, by any other source. It's through Christ and Christ alone that we have redemption. And that redemption is eternal. And there are many verses in the Word of God that we can go to to uh, 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 assure us of that reality. But the next thing, uh, he says, not only do we have redemption through His blood, but we have forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. The word there is afesan. And it means to send away, to release. That's what we have in Jesus Christ. We have the releasing of our sin. The Apostle Paul could have used several words in reference to uh, forgiveness. He could, he could have used several words, but he used this one, uh, uh, which primarily means to send away. And um, I believe he did it uh, from the standpoint of what we study in Leviticus chapter 16 in reference to the scapegoat. Remember the Day of Atonement? There were two goats brought. Do you remember the story? And how that the sins of the children of Israel were confessed over the head of the, the, the goat. And, and remember the goat was slain. The first goat was slain. And the blood of that goat was carried inside the Holy of Holies and sprinkled on the mercy seat. Then the blood was uh, put upon the, the head of another goat, the scapegoat. And the scapegoat was taken out into a wilderness and set free. He was sent away. He was released. And that was a symbolic picture of exactly what happened when Jesus Christ came and died for our sins. On the cross, he was the appointed goat that would bear the sins of the people of God. But then, in his resurrection, you see, in his death, burial, and resurrection, you see that there was something sent away. There was something released. The barrier. Uh, oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? You see, uh, the sting of death has been destroyed. The power of the grave has been overcome. And the people of God should never fear death because Jesus Christ conquered death, you see. And he sent away our sins, as it were. It, they, they were separated uh, as far uh, from us as the east is from the west. Isn't that, isn't that a wonderful? Is that divisive? Brothers and sisters, my soul, that comforts me. To realize that God has done something for me that I could never do for myself. And all of these blessings are in the person of Jesus Christ. Not only redemption, the ransom paid, but also forgiveness. The act of releasing 
those sins. In other words, when God the Father looks down upon my soul, he doesn't see the sinful Jeff. He doesn't see the one that is erroneous and, and weak and all of these things. He doesn't see that. He sees the perfect righteousness of his own son. Paul says, don't forget that. If you never see me again, if you never hear me preach the gospel again, don't forget who you are in Jesus Christ. Don't you forget the riches of sovereign grace. Not only redemption, not only forgiveness. Now, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, that would have been enough. Not only that, but he keeps on. And he says, uh, 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 through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to, in accordance with, the riches of his grace, wherein he is abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Uh, the word abounded there means to exceed or to be lavished upon. Now, this is uh, kind of curious to me. Here the Apostle Paul is incarcerated. He's wearing Roman chains. He's there for at least a period of two years. That means he, he was not able to earn a living. He was not able to um, pay his rent. What happens to you if you can't pay your rent, friends? I don't care who your landlord is. If you can't pay your rent, you can't live in the house. So I, I kind of picture the Apostle Paul losing uh, his rental property, losing his, his house, losing his job, uh, losing his uh, freedom, uh, losing uh, maybe what little bank uh, uh, account that he might have had. He, he lost just, if, you, if, if I can use this, he lost everything. And yet he uses a word that dispels all that he lost. He uses this term, I believe, on purpose. Uh, he hath abounded toward us. The, the term abounded is to exceed expectation. In other words, what the Apostle Paul, even though he lost everything in the world around him, he didn't lose Christ. And he found out that Christ was more than enough. He was exceedingly above anything of value that Paul could have ever, ever possessed. And he's, he's abounded toward us in all wisdom, wisdom, Sophia, wisdom, and prudence, prudence, phroneus, insight, or discernment. These are the terms that are translated into the English word. And sometimes our English word is, is, is inadequate uh, to describe the fullness of the term that Paul used. That's why it's important for us to compare the languages and understand what Paul is actually getting at. He says this revelation, uh, excuse me, this forgiveness is uh, based upon the blood of Jesus Christ. And now he's going to bring us to revelation Listen to this. In verse 9, he says, Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, the mysterion of his will, um, that which can only be known by divine revelation. You know why a person believes in Jesus Christ? Because it's revealed to him that Jesus is the Savior. You know why a person can uh, uh, read the Bible over and over again and come away and say, boy, you know, that's the most ridiculous book I've ever tried to read or understand. I can't understand a word of it. And then um, something happens 
later on, and they come to you and say, man, I'm even, I'm even getting something out of the blank page between Malachi and Matthew. <laughs> uh, you know, have you ever seen that happen? I have. I've seen it. I mean, you tell people, you tell people, you tell people, and they say, oh, I can't see it, can't see it, can't see it. And then the next thing you know, they're telling everybody, boy, I just found something brand new. What happened? God opened their eyes. God opened their ears. God opened their hearts to believe the things that he has written. The Apostle Paul says God's the one that has to do that. He has made known unto us the mystery of his will. And by the way, I, I don't think that that's just talking about the mystery of salvation. I also think it's talking about the mystery of the church. That God would build a church that wasn't based on national identity. That God would build a church out of his elect of many nations. Not just Israel. But be that as it may, none of that understanding comes apart from divine revelation. And Paul says, I want you to remember that's one of the benefits we have through the riches of the grace that we have in Christ. It is revelation, revelation of God's sovereign purpose in salvation and the mystery of the church itself. Listen, according to the good pleasure of uh, which he purposed in himself. You see, God is not a God of happenstance. He is a God of purpose, prothesis. He is a God of purpose. Now, he, he says in Isaiah 46, verse 10, I have purposed it, I will also bring it to pass. Um, uh, some, people, some people have this attitude toward God. They think that God is sitting upon his throne wondering what's going to happen next. Wondering what's going to happen next. What, what, what storm is going to blow? What earthquake is going to occur? What, uh, what's going to happen in this universe? What's going to happen next? And he's kind of waiting to arrange his mansions to see just how many chairs he's going to need or how many mansions he's going to need. He just doesn't know yet. He's waiting to see how men respond to him. Paul says that's blasphemy. The God of the Bible is a God of purpose. Jesus Christ died on purpose. Jesus Christ rose again on purpose. Jesus Christ made this promise on purpose. He says, I have prayed, uh, I have prayed the Father that where I am, there you may be also. Do you think Jesus is, uh, the Father is not going to answer that prayer? Do you think, do you think? That Jesus could ask anything of the Father that the Father would not give him? I don't. Brothers and sisters, Jesus prayed for you and me that we would be with the Father through eternity. Do you think he's going to turn a deaf ear to that? We have a God of purpose. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Not happenstance, not luck, not good fortune, but a God of purpose. What do we have in Christ? We have redemption. What do we have in Christ? We have forgiveness. What do we have in Christ? We have revelation. But also, brothers and sisters, we have uh, something that cannot be taken away. We have an inheritance. Listen to verse 10. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, you see, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. Now, 
all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. That's why I believe there's going to be a literal new heavens and new earth one day. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, but this world is going to be burned with a holy fire and indignation at the end of the age. But I believe, brothers and sisters, in a literal new heavens and new earth wherein dwells righteousness and all of the family of God are going to be there. Okay? That's what I believe that's what the Apostle Paul wants us to rejoice in this morning, that God is not going to fail in all that he has promised. So he says, not only in heaven, but on earth, even in him, in Christ, in whom we have obtained an inheritance, being um, predestinated according to the purpose, here it is again, the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will. Not the will of the sinner, not the will of mankind, not the will of NATO, not the will of the UN, not the will of Supreme Court, not the will of Washington, D.C., but according to his own will. Hallelujah. He works, energizes. He, he's, he's accomplishing uh, what he wants to accomplish, not only through good things, but also through bad things. Allowing bad things to happen can accomplish his sovereign purpose as well. Look how much was accomplished through the imprisonment of Paul. Somebody would have said, how different that is from the message of the world today. You know, the world today says, listen, if you just become a Christian, you're going to have a fat bank account. You're never going to get sick a day in your life. You're going to live happy and, and holy, and everybody around you is going to be friendly, and you're just going to have the best kind of life. All you need to do is, is uh, 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 become a Christian. You know, the message of Jesus is totally opposite. Jesus said, in the world you shall have tribulation. <laughs> Right? John 16, Acts 14, 22. We must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. I'm telling you, sometimes it gets hard down here. See, I'm not worried about uh, the sweet by and by. I'm concerned about the dirty now and now. It's right here that we have our issues. It's right here we have our problems. It's right here that we experience the same rejection that Christ experienced and those that follow Christ have always experienced in the world that we're living in. But hallelujah, one day, friends, all of that's going to be gone. All of that's going to be taken away. And there's not going to be any more devil. There's not going to be any more uh, alien. There's not going to be any more uh, 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 violence. There's not going to be any more of that. Because of the riches of his grace. Paul says don't forget that. Please, please don't forget that. Now third, thirdly, let's uh, consider very quickly the blessings that we have from God the Holy Spirit. Verses 13 and 14. He says, um, verse 12, that we should be to the praise and glory of his grace. Remember, it's all for his glory that we should be to the praise and glory of his grace who first trusted in Christ. And I believe that he's referring to the Jewish people who first trusted in Christ. Now, the gospel has gone to the Gentiles, even in Ephesus, and they can trust in Christ also. In verse 13, he says, In whom ye also, you Gentiles, uh, trusted, 
after that ye heard the word of truth. Now, some brothers, you need to understand the gospel is important. The gospel is not insignificant in God's plan. The gospel is a part of that plan. And Jesus and, and the Apostle Paul says, you have trusted in Christ after you heard the gospel, the word of truth. Okay? The gospel of your salvation, the good news of your salvation. In whom also after that ye believe. Somebody says it's not important if you believe. You better erase this verse. After you believed... You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, consider with me what he's talking about. When he's talking about the sealing of the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit has to come into the heart of man in regeneration before he'll ever believe. We know that from many, many scriptures. That's an easy doctrine to to defend biblically. But what's fallen on bad times in our generation is the doctrine of conversion. Somebody says, well, God has myriads of uh, elect out here that experience regeneration, but they're never converted. Did you know that's heresy? That is unbiblical. The reason God brings regeneration into the heart and life of an individual is so that they can be converted. And when they are converted, they are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. They're sealed. When my mama would can uh, vegetables each year, she would make sure she had a good seal on those jars because that's what preserved the contents. That's one of the definitions of sealing, but it's not the only definition. If you're taking notes, and I hope you are, uh, one definition is to keep for, uh, uh, is for preservation. But there's something else uh, that is uh, beautiful about this to my mind this morning. I find uh, the biblically that when we talk about sealing, we're talking about one preservation, two security. I find in Daniel chapter 6 verse uh, 17 where Darius had Daniel thrown into the den of lions and they rolled that stone over the hole and sealed it. It was made secure. In Matthew chapter 27 verse 62 I find Pilate did the same thing. They, they put a Roman seal upon that uh, stone that covered the tomb of Jesus Christ. It was sealed. It was secured. So preservation. Security. Mm-hmm. And then. Uh, this, this comes from Cruden's Concordance. A seal of authenticity. In 1 Kings chapter 21 verses 6 through 16. That's when uh, Jezebel caused Naboth to be stoned to death. Remember that? so that her husband Ahab could uh, steal his vineyard. You, you remember that? Well, she sent out letters in Ahab's name, and she sealed it with Ahab's ring. And Mr. Cruden 
said, that is the seal of authenticity. So preservation, security, and uh, authenticity. And then in Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 10, we find an example of the seal of ownership. Because Jeremiah was commanded by the Lord to buy the field of Hanamel in Anathoth, and he sealed the deed. Remember this? He sealed the deed, and, he, and God said, go ahead and buy that land and put that deed inside an earthen vessel and bury it. Seal it and bury it. And uh, there's a whole chapter that's dealing with this. And, and uh, Jeremiah did that. And this is why he did it. This would be uh, um, a picture lesson that God was going to bring a remnant back from Babylonian captivity to the land of Jerusalem, to the, to the land of Judah at the end of 70 years. This was uh, showing ownership. And I thought that was a great point. Okay, okay, ownership, authenticity, uh-huh, security, uh, mm-hmm. preservation, that's good. And then, Mr. Cruden said again, the seal of authority. In Esther chapter 8, verses 8 through 12, Remember Ahasuerus and Mordecai and Esther sat down at a table and the king of Persia said to Mordecai, I want you to write down instructions for the Jews that are about to be slaughtered. And whatever you write, I'm going to seal with my ring. And you're going to send it to all 120 provinces so that the Jews aren't slaughtered. You know, to me, that, that's a, a powerful a picture, a picture, if you will, of authority. He had absolute authority. In fact, he said uh, in verse twelve, in uh, Esther chapter eight, verse twelve, whatever I whatever I write and seal cannot be undone. Thank you, Mister Cruden. That adds something to what Paul is writing about. Because it tells me that there's more to being sealed by the Holy Spirit than being preserved. It also can convey the idea, not only of preservation, but also the idea of security, the idea of authenticity, the idea of ownership, and the idea of of authority. All of those meanings have a very significant importance to Paul's argument, after you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. No charge for that, brethren. No charge. No charge. And lastly, verse 14, the Holy Spirit that is given us, he says, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. The earnest. If we were to word it in our terminology, it would be down payment. The word earn it's an, it's it's really an interesting word study. The word erebon in the Greek language is the word for promise ring. You ladies know what a promise ring is. When 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 I proposed to my dear wife. Uh, in the dark ages back over 46 years ago, 
or seven, 47 maybe, years ago. Uh, I was so proud as a carpenter apprentice, I went down to a, a company that probably isn't even in business anymore called Zales. And I walked in there, 19 years old, and I had two weeks of pay in my back pocket. I found out that wasn't enough. And the man looked me over and he says, young man, what are you here for? And I said, I'm here for a promise ring. He says, you're kidding me. He said, how much you want to pay? I said, I have no idea. I'd never bought a ring. A promise ring at that. And he took me to one, uh, you know, he had this pretty uh, glass thing with, with rings underneath the glass. And he took me to this one. And, I, and he had the price tag. Back in that day, they had the price tag under it. You can't, they don't do that anymore. But I looked at the price tag. I said, uh-uh. I looked at the price tag. Uh-uh. And we went down the whole thing. I'm serious. We went down the whole thing. They were all pretty. But I was looking at the uh-huh. You know what? I was, I was, it scared me to death. And he said, he said well, <clears throat> I do have... Uh, some return goods in the back. I said, not me. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm here to buy a promise ring. And I'm not going to buy one that's used. And I don't want it to be fake. And he said, well, maybe you need to go to the uh, this store down the street. No, he didn't. He was very kind to me. And he said, well, he says, uh, how about this one? And there was a little bit of defect in the stone, you know. He was real honest. I didn't tell my wife that until this very sermon. But uh, there was just a little defect in it, and he says, you know, because of that, it's got to be half price. Sold! <laughs> and I bought that that promise ring, and I gave it to Donna, and she, she acted like it was a million dollars. In the Greek language... The word for promise ring is Erebon. Erebon. And it literally means down payment. Do you understand the significance of that? What a promise ring is doing, it's saying, not only am I going to be committed to you, you know, to, to marry, uh, you're not ready for marriage yet, but I'm committed to marry you. That's that commitment. But it's also a promise of future blessing. It's a promise of, of something better in the days to come, you see? And that word is conveyed by Erebon. And that's exactly the word that the Apostle Paul uses here in our text. What we have uh, through the riches of God's sovereign grace is a future hope, a future glory that will never be taken away. It'll never fade away. That's what the Apostle Peter was drawing our attention to in the book of First Peter chapter uh, 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath bless, uh, begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and uh, that fadeth not away reserved reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Hallelujah, brothers and sisters. The riches of God's sovereign grace are not only related to the past, 
but also related to the present and also related to the future. And the Apostle Paul says, I want you to never forget that. I want you to never lose sight of that. I want this to be a foundational uh, build, uh, a foundational uh, building uh, to your life and to what God is showing you and God is leading you to. Don't ever lose sight of who you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody says, you're too tall. No, I'm not. Christ made me. Why, you're too little. No, I'm not. Christ made me. You're too uh, skinny. You're too fat. You're too pretty. You're too ugly. You're too this. You're too that. You just look them in the eye and say, I'm exactly the way the Lord Jesus Christ made me. And I'm happy with it. I'm satisfied with it. What are you satisfied with this morning? I'm satisfied with the riches of His grace. Thank you for your good attention.